and you can check out all these videos. Uh, Tim Mackey and his partner have created videos galore on the Bible. In fact, there is a video on every book of the Bible on their website. So maybe you come to a book of the Bible and you just don't understand, or maybe you want a preview of what it's going to be. You can go to thebibleproject.com, watch the video, and he does an animation like that every time. But this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Exodus, the really the first 12 chapters uh, this morning. And so what I want to do is pray, and then we're going to dive in. Uh, we got some reading assistance this morning, so we got some teenagers going to come up and read for us this morning uh, our passages. But if you want to, you can grab your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 1, uh, page 48 in one of those Bibles in front of you. I, I believe it's page 48 in one of those Bibles in front of you. Um, if you got your app, you can get on your app on your phone. If you want to go to uversion.com, BibleGateway, BibleHub.com, any of those, that would be awesome. Uh, but let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in there this morning as we read really Exodus 1 and Exodus 3, and we'll be taking a look at this deliverance of what God has been doing uh, for Israel. All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. So, Father, we come to you right now. We just thank you for the opportunity now to read in your word and, and get to know who you are, and that, Lord, you might search us and try us and know us as well this morning, that, Lord, we might be found to be people who desire to follow you. And so, Father, we ask that you would do your work amongst us this morning. We thank you for an opportunity now to dive into your word, to dive into words of life for us, that we might have life in your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's do this together. Let's go through some symbols. Uh, this is going to be important for where we go this morning. I want to see your knowledge and see how good you guys are. What does that represent? What is it, first of all? A raven. What does a raven represent? Somebody said it. Death. Death. Raven represents death. I gave you a little clue with the skull at the bottom. Here we go. Dove. What does it represent? Peace. So who says the peace? Dove represents peace, peace in our lives. Next one. All right, Connie Morgan, where are you? Let's go. What does it represent? This is your favorite thing? You sign off with a butterfly every email or text. New life, transformation. Transformation, a butterfly. So when you see a butterfly, you think of transformation. Here we go. I had losing in my brain, but someone just said patience, patience, patience. Let's go one more. This is where we're going this morning. The nation of Egypt. What does Egypt represent in the Bible? Anybody know? Sin and slavery. So as you go through your Bible, as we go through this morning into the story of the nation of Egypt holding Israel captive, I want you to get in your minds that Egypt in the Bible represents sin and slavery to sin. It's going to be really important is where we're going to go this morning. We're going to wrap ourselves around the idea of Egypt representing sin and slavery to sin. Zach's going to read Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7 to begin with. And we're going to have fun because he's going to read a few verses, then I'm going to comment. He's going to read a few verses, then I'm going to comment. Read a few verses, comment. And then Lauren's going to come up. We're going to do the same thing. All right? Here we go. Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. Good luck, Zach, with all the names. Yeah, a lot of names. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, 
The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all, the gen all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that they filled the land with them. So what do we see right off the bat in the story? God is faithful to his promises. You got your notes, you can fill these in. God is always faithful to his promises. We just sang it here a moment ago. I don't know if you caught that. Our God is faithful. He's always faithful to his promises. What was the promise that's being fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1? What's the promise? If you haven't been with us, we were before with a guy named Abram. And God comes to a man named Abram. And in Genesis 15, he tells him one thing. He says, you're going to have descendants that number the what? The stars in the skies. Small problem. Abram and his wife Sarah are what? Not pregnant, can't get pregnant, and they are old. 75 and 65 years old. Small little problem. But if you follow along with the story with us, Abraham and Sarah have a baby. When How old was Abraham? 100 years old. Sarah, how old was she when they had the rightful child? 90. And God in this moment is reminding his people, I love you, I care for you, you are in a covenant with me, and I fulfill my promises. Then we studied Joseph last week, if you weren't with us. We took a look at Genesis 37 through 50. We took a look at how Joseph actually got sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers. And what looked like tragedy ended up being what? Redemption. That God would use Joseph in Egypt to actually spare and save the nation of Israel. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, 400 years have been passing. Did you all notice how many people that came from Jacob's line there was going into Egypt? How many? Anybody notice it in this passage? 70. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like the stars in the skies to me. 70 people. So we still have a problem here. When are the, when are the people going to become numerous? Well, we see here in Exodus chapter 1, God fulfills his promise. The land begins to flow with the Israelites. Do you all remember the Duggar family? Anybody Duggar family? A few? 19 kids? They had a television show? And they were like fertile myrtle. They were like just reproductive people. Like every year they had another baby. And I got that in my mind. This is the Israelites. Like all of them just keep having kids left and right. In fact, as we come out of this story in Egypt, when they crossed through the Red Sea, do you realize that there were over 2.5 million Israelites that passed through the Red Sea? They went from 70 in Egypt to what? Over 2.5 million. God fulfills his promise. I was thinking about this today as we look at this story. If you're with us in week one, we took a look at how the Bible is a continuous story, but it goes from creation into the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve in the garden, to what redemption is coming 
and then restoration. Guess what this story today is just showing us? Here's creation. God has what? Repopulate. God is doing what? A work amongst the Israelites that he is making them fertile to the place that they are growing in number to fulfill his promise. Our God is faithful. Zachary, let's go verse 8 through 14. Then a new king whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the, Isra the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we, have, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python, Python, mm -hmm. and Ramesses as sore cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Okay, let's go back. Symbols. What does Egypt represent in the Bible? Sin. Slavery to sin. Now, I want you to get that picture in your mind as you read these verses. I want to tap into this in our own lives as well. Sin always oppresses us. Sin always oppresses us. It beats us down. If you see in this story, there's a problem here. There's a new king in order. Pharaoh, the old Pharaoh that knew Joseph is now gone, and there is a new king, and the Bible says he forgot about Joseph. And so he forgets about Joseph, and he says that the Israelites have become too numerous. They are a challenge. They are now becoming a rival. They are now beginning to demand things. We need to take care of the Israelites. We need to do something with these people. So what do they do? They put them into slavery. And they beat them down. And they make work awful for these people. Anybody in the room hate your work? I think you and I would have like the Taj Mahal of work compared to these people. And so they will put them into slavery and they will beat them down and they will make sure that they know who rules over them. Guys, this is what sin does to you and me. Sin looks fun, doesn't it? Anybody in the room? At points we go, man, you know, following Jesus is hard. It was easier to live for the flesh. It was easier to do things for myself. It was easier to follow my own ways. It's easier that way. And what we don't understand is this, though, that when we go apart from Christ, who is life, who understands life, who has given us life, sin oppresses us. It will beat you down. I heard Tim Keller say it this way from the garden. It oppresses us relationally, 
emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. It fractures every area of our lives. So when people come into me for marriage counseling, we all want what? We all want a little quick pill that makes our marriages look awesome, don't we? Come on, guys, don't we? Tell me the easy solution, Pastor. I need the easy thing for me to do to make my wife get along with me, to make my husband do what he's supposed to be doing. Just give me a little quick pill. Give me a little shot so that everything is okay. Just give it to me. As graciously as I can, I look at married couples and I go, there is no simple solution. There is no easy pill. Because the problem lies within you, not outside you. No, it's his fault. Welcome to the garden. Who blamed whom? You just want to play blame game. But your marriage is fractured because the sin that lies inside of you. And the sin that lies inside of your partner. You put two simple people together, what do you get? More sin. There is no easy remedy or pill. In fact, what you want is surfacey stuff. And God is saying here that there is something deeper that is going on through the Egyptians. That sin enslaves us. All right, let's keep reading. Verses 16 through 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrews, Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and when when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, "Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live?" The midwives answered Pharaoh, he, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because, of, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Sin is at the core. But sin will not be defeated on your own. You're going to need outside help. And these six verses, seven verses here, to close out Exodus 1, we begin to see a glimpse that they will not overcome Egypt on their own. They're going to need some outside help. And so the new Pharaoh does what? He orders the midwives to do what? Kill every boy. Let the girl live. What is he trying to get at? Just wipe this nation out. Israel will no longer be a threat if we kill all the boys. Sin does that to us. Sin always leads to, thank you, I've said it, I've been here 12 years, and I say it at least two or three times every year. 
And where do I get that? I get that from James chapter 1. Sin always leads to death. You think you're getting away with it. You think God doesn't see you. You think your spouse is not catching on. You think your coworker's not getting the gist of what you're doing. It will always come back to bite you, believe me. Or should I say, believe scripture. Sin always leads to death. And here's what's happening. Death is coming, but outside help is on the way. First of all, we see what? The midwives. Those delivering. What are they doing, guys? You see here? What are they doing? They're going against Pharaoh's orders. They're letting the boys live. In fact, it says later in the passage that what? God is ultimately helping these midwives. That God is blessing these midwives. He was kind to them in verse 20. And the people increased all the more. God is behind the scenes. The midwives feared God. I believe that God put these midwives in place for a purpose and a reason. Do you? That God knows the ultimate plan and he puts people and he signs people in positions to further his kingdom. If you look through the Bible, this is sort of interesting. We wish God would just snap his fingers and do things in the Bible, don't we? But if you read the Bible, most oftentimes God does what to fulfill his plans? He works through people, like you and me. God could ultimately snap his fingers or say a word, and it could come into being. But God usually uses people, because that's at his heartbeat, to use his kids to fulfill his purposes. And so he uses the midwives here. And that little idea is this, that God is going to do something outside of our own being. And the same is true with sin. You cannot defeat sin on your own. Let me give you a few lies of the devil this morning about sin. The first thing that the devil will lie to us is this. Sin will go away if I just make better choices. First of all, let me explain sin to you. Sin is just not choices. See, Jesus went deeper than just choices. Jesus' sin is any wrong motive that we do things in. So I could go help the lady across the street get to church one day because she's, she's on a walker and I could help her cross this road out here. But my whole motivation is that as you guys are pulling in the drive, you might see the pastor helping some old lady go, that's my pastor, that's my boy. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I'm going, no, I'm doing it so everybody will see me. I'm not doing it for the glory of God. I'm doing it for the glory of Chris. Sin runs deeper than just choices. In fact, Jesus is going to get at that in the Sermon on the Mount. Read it sometime. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Read it. Jesus is going to say this. Sin goes deeper than just some choices. And so for us, sin goes deeper. You just can't make some better choices. Let me give you another lie of the devil. I will just simply try harder not to sin. If I just grit my teeth and go, I'm not going to do this anymore, then sin will go away. It's a lie. Some of you in the room can testify to this. You tried harder. And still, sin increased. Sin continued to go on in my life. 
The third is this. I can overcome sin on my own. This one strikes me to the cord right now. My heart is aching for the church in America right now. I got to play golf with Scott Schneider, our counselor, on Thursday. It was awesome. Scott played 18 holes without his oxygen. I don't know if you know, but he's going through lung cancer, stage four, and going through the chemo. Got to play golf with him, and we got to talk quite a bit just on the golf course. And one of the things he kept saying to me is, Chris, the church needs each other. The church needs each other. The church needs each other. I said, Scott, I know. I said, my fear in the church is too many people are trying to walk this journey with Jesus on their own. And it doesn't work that way, guys. God set the church up for a reason. One of those being that we might be a community that helps each other walk this journey with Jesus. Some of us in this room think that church is just coming here on Sunday morning singing some songs, hearing a message, taking some communion, feeling better about ourselves so we can walk out and do our deal for the week, and you've missed church. Guys, I beg and plead with you, if you're not involved in the church, if you're not involved with people, to get yourself involved with people, to go deep with each other, to help each other walk this journey against sin, against death, against Satan. I'm telling you, you need each other. We need each other. You can't overcome sin. I can't overcome my sin on my own. I need you guys. I need you. I need you to ask me, how are you doing with this? What's going on inside of you, Chris? And I know some of you, I I appreciate Some of you are asking some of those hard questions. I want to ask the hard questions. I don't want surfacey Christianity. I'm tired of surfacey Christianity. I'm tired of it. It's old. It's boring. It's routine. Let's go deep with each other. Let's ask each other the hard stuff. Ask me the hard stuff. It's the only way sin will be overcome. I love this about Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step program. Y'all ever read through these before? Anybody ever read through these? I got to go with a friend a few years ago to an AA meeting. He's struggling with alcoholism. He didn't want to go by himself. I said, dude, I'll go with you. So I sat in a room down in Eastgate with about 50 other people. As we just talked about going through these 12 steps. Number one, we admit we are powerless over alcohol. That our lives have become unmanageable. Two, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. We we start to look within. We start saying, what is going on? What is at the depths of me? Five, we admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Y'all catching the drift here. I can't do this on my own. And here's what we'll say in the church. Well, those are the alcoholics. I'm not an alcoholic. Those are the alcoholics. They need that. No, I'm like, no, we all need that. We're all addicted to idolatry. We're all addicted to our own devices. For some it's not alcohol, for some it's drugs, but for some it's sex. But for others it's pride and ego. It's arrogance. 
For some, it's money. For some, it's our kids. We have placed our kids as a pedestal that they are our God, and we need help to overcome that. Guys, you will not defeat sin on your own. You will not defeat Egypt on your own. It will take an outside source. And I say sources because I believe this. And Jesus said it when he, in Acts 9, Jesus says to Saul at the time, why do you persecute me? Who is Saul persecuting in Acts chapter 9? The church. Yet Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And Jesus is taking the direct link that when you persecute the church, you're actually persecuting me. Because the church is mine. Guys, we need each other. It's the reminder over and over and over again that the battle against sin will only be defeated outside of ourselves through help. Lauren's going to read Exodus chapter 3. So turn over to Exodus chapter 3. We'll continue on in the story with a guy named Moses. 3, 1 through 10. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the land, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Y'all catching the scene? A guy named Moses. If you know the story, was put in a basket in the Nile River. He was found by Pharaoh's family, and they bring him in. And now we see Pharaoh is tending his father-in-law's sheep on Lower Cumberland Road. Y'all don't believe me. What was the name of the mountain? Horeb. Where do y'all think we get the name Mount Horeb? That Mount Horeb actually here in Exodus 20 we'll see is Mount Sinai as well. And it's going to be a very important place. But there he is tending sheep when all of a sudden he looks over and what is burning? A bush. Now in the desert a bush burns quite regularly. But that's not what caught Moses' attention. It's not just a burning bush. What's happening to the bushes that's burning? It's not burning up. I don't know about you, but if you're tending sheep and you see a bush catch on fire, you're going to at least look that direction, but you're going to go, oh, we're out in the desert. A bush is burning, big deal. But when you look over and see a bush is burning and it's not burning up, it might catch your attention. And so it catches Moses' attention. 
And a voice comes thundering out of the bush. I won't try it. It probably won't be a good God voice. But a voice comes out and he summons Moses over to the bush. And he begins to tell him some things. Now it says here that an angel of the Lord was the one inside the bush. We call this a Christophany. Why? Because we believe that Jesus Christ is the one who actually spoke to Moses out of that burning bush. And there's reasons we believe that. Because here soon he's going to give him a name. And the name matters because here in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to declare to other people that he is, I am. And so the voice comes thundering out of the bush, and Moses is intrigued. But I love this as we think about this. I love that he chose Moses. If you remember the story from the first session we did, we talked about how God chose whom on the ark? Noah. And why did he choose Noah? Noah was a righteous man. He was upright in all that he did. And so God chooses the most upright man, and we see after he gets off the ark, what happens to Noah? He gets hammered. And the idea right there is what? That God chose the most righteous man, and he's still a sinner. So God changes the MO a little bit and how he's going to do. He chooses Abram. If you remember, we talked about Abram. Abram was what? An idolater. He was someone who didn't even know who God was. He followed many gods, and God chooses him. And now God is going to choose a man named Moses. Let me go through his profile in case you didn't know. Moses was born at a time when Pharaoh was killing all the Hebrew boys. Unlikely that he would ever even live. And then my son said it, Dad, if he got put in a basket going down the Nile, where are all the crocodiles? I love how kids think. I said, son, I don't know, but maybe they chose a section of the river that didn't have so many crocodiles. Or maybe like Daniel and the lions and God shut the mouths of the crocodiles. I don't know. But I do know this, that Moses survives that, and Moses is taken in as a Hebrew child into Pharaoh's home. But we read in chapter 2, you can read it on your own this week, Moses becomes a murderer. And he flees Egypt. So God is going to use an unlikely source on a kid who should never have been born and never survive to a kid who, a guy who now murders someone else, and he flees Egypt. But Moses then gets married and he tends his father-in-law flock off in the wilderness. Now, if you were going to choose to rescue a nation, who are you choosing? Come on, who are you choosing? Someone with political power, somebody with clout in the community, somebody who has it all together. I'm choosing that person to lead the nation. But God chooses a guy who should not have been born, a murderer who flees Egypt and now is off on Lower Cumberland Road Tending his father-in-law's sheep. Not a real prestigious job. And the Moses in this passage in chapter 3 contends that he is not qualified. Not only is he a murderer, but we realize he's a stutterer. And God is going to use a stutterer to go get the people out of Egypt. If you're Pharaoh and a guy walks up to you stuttering, how are you feeling? 
are you serious, dude? God, you sent a guy who can't even speak right to challenge me? Why didn't you choose the most eloquent speaker you got, God? And not only that, is think about it, he's going to go back to Egypt where he's wanted. Guys, I want two things that you to understand out of this right now is, guys, God will use ordinary people to do unbelievable things in the kingdom of God. Some of you in this room are ordinary. Actually, can I just be honest with you? When my buddies call and ask me what kind of church you got, I got, I got a bunch of ordinary people here. He goes, what do you mean by that? I go, I got no politicians. I don't have a bunch of entrepreneurs. I don't have people on town council. I said, I got no sugar daddies in this church that I know of. You think I'm joking? My buddy had a, had a guy in his church give $15 million on the spot to build their building. Like, where do you find one of those guys? I just need 1.2. Can you send them my way? I said, but it's one of the things I love about our church. I can wear blue jeans and a t-shirt, and I can be Chris LaGrange, and people are just going to love me. I'm like, I'm cool with that. And I'm looking and going, God's going to do unbelievable things with us. But the second thing I want you to see is I think God is going to something bigger here. See, Jesus is the greater Moses. Y'all catching this? Let me point it out to you, right? Let's see if this matches up. Jesus was born in shame just like Moses. How scandalous is the virgin birth? Joseph's own family won't let him in the house. <gasps> Y'all got pregnant out of wedlock. <gasps> Jesus is born in shame. He lived an ordinary life for the first 30 years of life. How much do we know about Jesus from the first 30 years? Come on. Anybody? We don't know much. In fact, his first 30 years of Jesus Christ's life, we don't learn much about who Jesus is. Why? Because he was working for daddy. In fact, most people will say Joseph died when he was a teenager. And he was trying to help support mom at home. We don't know much about him. He was not born of royalty or great political persuasion. In fact, in Isaiah 53, it says that there was nothing that would draw us to him. You would walk by him down here in Kroger and you'd be like, hey dude, what's up? He didn't look like majesty. He didn't look like royalty. He didn't have the crown on his head. He was not impressive in nature. And yet God chose him to lead us, his people, out of bondage to the ultimate Egypt, sin and death. Jesus is the greater Moses. Exodus 3, 11 through 15. Let's go. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. 
Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Lastly, God will reveal himself and his plan of salvation. And it's right here. Three ways he's going to do this. One, by his name. One, by his name. Everything is in the name. That's why my parents named me, yeah, baby, Kristen Blair is my full name. Now, you know why I go by Chris? I just had it yesterday. We were changing phones, and he said, what's your name? I said, Chris, and I go, but my full name will be Kristen, and he just looked at me. I go, I know, girl's name, I get it, got it. That's why I go by Chris. He goes, ah, yes, that's why you go by Chris. Yes, I got it. And honestly, I, I've always hated that name. My mom's always like, we should have named you Christian. I'm like, yeah, you should have, but you didn't. <laughs> Everybody asks, did you think your parents think they were going to have a girl? No, they did not think they were going to have a girl. They liked Kristen for a boy. But then I delved deeper into the name Kristen. You know what it means? A Christian. And it's... Weird sort of way, I sort of grown to appreciate that name because it identifies who I really am, a follower of Jesus. And here in this passage, a name matters, guys. The name matters. And so as the angel Lord speaks out of the bush, he gives Moses a name to give to Pharaoh and to Egypt. What is the name? He says, I am who I am. Am. What? That makes no sense. I am who I am. Let me put it this way. Let's do a little bit of Hebrew. That term there in Hebrew is echwe. Can you say it? You gotta get, you gotta get some saliva in you. Echwe. And so he says, echwe, ase, echwe. But in the following verse, he says, but when you go to Pharaoh, tell him that, what? The Lord sent you. The Lord, all caps, means what? Yahweh. And so he says, when you go to them, say Yahweh. But right now, I'm telling you, I'm Yahweh. Why? This is amazing. God's brilliant. Yahweh, E-H. W-E-H. E-H stands for I. Yahweh stands for what? The Y-A. He. And so he says this. When you go to tell them who sent you, say Yahweh. He sent you. Why? Because if Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Ehweh, they're going to be like, what? You're declaring yourself to be God. And so he slightly changes and says, Go with Yahweh. Now, what does that word mean? Yahweh. He will be who he will be, which means this. I am the self-sustaining one, the one who was before all things, and I am the one who is above all things. In your polytheistic world with all these gods, I am the one who is over all of them. I rule, is what he's telling Pharaoh. 
There's something in the name. There's something there. Guys, if we're going to overcome sin, there's something in the name of Jesus. Sin, the devil, hate the name Jesus. We had it last week. Let me tell you a story about Rick Cooper. Rick had a little blunder last week in church, but he had an awesome moment before that. I'll leave that alone, Rick. Boo, yeah, boo. Rick last week got a call from a lady, one of his tenants. And she said, Rick, there's demons in our house. I know you're a pastor. Would you come out to the house and do whatever you do to get these demons out of our house? Rick called me up and said, brother, I need you to pray over me, anoint me as I go. I said, let's do this, let's pray. We prayed together, he went that evening to the house. They had encountered where the woman had been grabbed by the ankle in her sleep that week. They had a little baby who had been cut on the finger and they have no clue where the cut came from, but they believed that the demon had cut the hand. They had pictures that they took where you could see the demons. So Rick goes out to the house and he begins to anoint the house. He begins to pray over the house and pray through the house. And Rick said, I kept saying the name of Jesus. The name above all other names. I kept saying the name of Jesus, anointing places with the name of Jesus. And he said, we opened the front door and we anointed the house. And as we anointed the house, they said, Joy was out in the car and she said, I saw the demon shaped like a dog run through the front door and out into the field behind the house. The husband said, I went out the back door and saw what? Another demon flee out the back door. And Rick said, well, at the name of Jesus, they will bow. There's something in the name. And so when he says, tell them that Yahweh has sent me, Pharaoh knows that he is dealing with a God above all other gods. That I am who I am has shown up. Guys, you need the name of Jesus if you're going to overcome sin. There's something in the name of Jesus. And I'm excited because we're about to sing about Jesus. There's something there. The second we see is by his power. We'll see later that he's going to do what? He's going to send plagues upon the land. And God is going to display his power over Egypt, over sin and death. And the ten plagues, he's going to confront all of the gods that Pharaoh believes that are more powerful than the I am. And out of those ten, God will remind Pharaoh that he is greater than any of the other gods. Guys, if we're going to overcome sin, we need his name, but we also need what? His power. Self-help books will not help you overcome sin. They will not lead you to overcome sin. Sin is deeper than a self-help book. Sin is at the root of us, at the core of us. It is deep down entrenched in us. We need Jesus, and we need his power to overcome sin. That's why I love Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the first thing they say? We admit we are powerless over alcohol. We are powerless. We need outside power. But the 10th plague is going to show us his plan. 
And we need his salvation. The tenth plague is going to be what? That they are to take a lamb and put it over the door frames of the houses. As the angel passes over the houses, the places that do not have the blood of the lamb will be what? The firstborn will die. And it's a reminder that we need his plan as well. His ultimate purpose is of salvation. Guys, think about it. The foreshadowing of the cross is right here. Do you all see the cross? Do you see it? That we need the blood of the lamb to cover our door frames of our hearts. You need the blood of the lamb to cover over you. Because you on your own, in your own self-help books, will not overcome sin. We need outside blood, and we need the blood of a lamb. Guys, it's foreshadowing. It's beautiful what God's going to do. That the blood of Jesus will cover over all our sin. Guys, I don't know about you this morning, but maybe as we sing this next song, we need to reflect on who Jesus is and we need to reflect on how his blood was shed for us. That we might not face death any longer, that we might overcome death, we might overcome Egypt, we might overcome sin through the blood of the Lamb. It'll be by his power and his plan. Says the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you right now, and we need you. We need your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much that through your power and through your death that we might overcome sin. For some of us in this room, we think we're just going to press through, we're just going to push through. Father, it's a lie. I don't need more of me. That's the problem. I need more of Jesus. I need Jesus to come to the very depths of me and begin to change me and transform me. I need his blood to cover over me. Father, for some of us, we just need to cry out this morning that we're tired of living in sin. We're tired of the brokenness that keeps happening. desire healing. So I pray that, Lord, you might bring healing. You might bring it through the church with some of us. That we might be a people who actually confess to each other and, and look out for each other and find healing together. Help us to be that church, Father. Help us to be those people. Help us to go deep with each other. Help us not to do surfacey Christianity. Help us to go deep with each other. So Jesus, right now, we ask that you would do a work inside of us. You would bring redemption, bring restoration. Jesus, we're reminded that today, death, sin, and hell have to bow at your name. That the name of Jesus, everyone will bow. 